Well, we are in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 6. The title of the message tonight is Resisting Pressure. And by way of reminder, let's just, let's just think about the book of Colossians so far. So far in chapter 1, we've looked at the exaltation of Christ. Or we could say the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is supreme. And Paul is fired up. He's real theological. He's real passionate in chapter one. And he is just nailing down these truths, these grand truths of Christ's deity. That Jesus is the creator of all things. That Jesus is the sustainer of all things. That this is who Jesus is. That was chapter one. And at the end of chapter two, what we saw last week was this transition. It was a transition in the section of the book where Paul is transitioning from theological truths to he gets more personal and he talks about how he was willing to suffer on their behalf he also shared his heart and his goal for the truth for that church and remember I think this is really important to know in Paul's ministry as we looked at those four trademark of Paul's ministry last week that he rejoiced in adversity that he was able to reveal God's mystery and then that he's rebuking heresies we saw these four trademarks but remember his goal his goal for the church was not simply to convert them from paganism to Christianity. No, his goal for the church of Colossae is that they would go from believers to disciples. Remember that they would go on to the maturity, to the completeness of Christ. And so his goal was their maturity. Paul's ministry was not simply conversion. It was that we as the bride of Christ, as the body of Christ, that we would be sanctified, that we would grow up from childhood into maturehood in Christ, into adulthood in Christ. So the fullness of what God has for us as his new creation. You guys remembering this? This is all reviews so far. So we saw that Paul's method of growth, his goal is the maturity of the church. His method of growth to get us there was not by our performance. It was not principles. It was not the seven keys to success. No, Paul's method for Christian growth was to preach Christ, to preach Jesus. That in a greater understanding of Jesus, that would then lead us to worship. It would lead us to a greater love for one another. And it would lead us to personal encouragement and edification. And there right there in a summary, that is Christian maturity. Christian maturity is someone who worships. A mature Christian is someone whose life is all about understanding, knowing and worshiping Jesus. Christian maturity is marked by a love for one another. So if we don't have a love for one another, we're babies still. We're growing in a love for one another. That's the trademark that Jesus says we will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. And that will lead then to this personal edification. These are marks of Christian maturity. So the goal is the maturity of the saints. The method is to preach Christ, but there's a roadblock on the way. You remember this? We talked about this toward the end of last week's message. The roadblock that is keeping the church of Colossae from spiritual growth is deception and persuasive arguments according to verse 4. Persuasive arguments and deception is a roadblock from understanding Christ and growing in Christian maturity. And so... 
Paul is now going to focus in on refuting, on identifying and refuting these lies and the deception. And remember, we made this important point in ending last week that one of the enemy's greatest instruments of deception or the the greatest instrument of deception is words. Or more specifically, every word that comes out of the enemy's mouth is what? A lie. He's the father of lies. And this is important to note for us today, that the enemy, he lies. His lies are a roadblock from our spiritual growth in Christ. So we are going to identify three of these lies and we're going to identify them in the form of pressures. They are external pressures from the enemy in the form of lies to get us off track from Christian maturity. So three different pressures that we're going to look at today and for us to resist. These three pressures are cultural pressures. We're going to see this in verses 6 through 10. Then we're going to see the importance of resisting religious pressures from verses 11 to 15. And then the importance of resisting spiritual pressures from verses 16 to 23. So let's begin here with the cultural pressures. Let's read verse 6 through 10. This is God's word and it says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in them. Everyone say walk. So walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Everyone smile for a moment. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Man, we got to work on being more thankful, do we not? With thanksgiving. Verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. There's our key word again, deceit. Deception, deceit. So beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhood bodily. Everyone say bodily. Important word there. Verse 10. And you are complete in him. Which is the same word for maturity. We're mature in him who is the head of all principality and power. Notice here Paul's emphasis in verse 6, that since we have received Christ, we are now responsible or we are called is to walk in him, to be rooted in Jesus, to be built up in Jesus, to be established in Jesus. Paul gives three different metaphors there, talking about a, a tree being rooted, a, an army turn of being established, of being built up in him. All of these things, when it comes to our lifestyle, when it comes to our life, when it comes to growth, it is all to be rooted in Jesus. This is his point. This is his emphasis. In other words, he's saying that Jesus is enough to save us and Jesus is enough to sustain us through this life. And the Colossian heresy was like most heresies, which is this. Most heresies are that Jesus is enough to get started, but he's not enough to complete us. 
that Jesus and his grace is enough for salvation to occur, but now it's up to us to keep our own salvation by our performance. Most heresies are rooted in this, that Jesus is Savior, but he's not necessarily Lord. So notice there in verse 6, he refers to Christ Jesus, the Lord. He's not only the one who saves us from the power of sin, but he is Lord, the one we are supposed to follow, to walk with him, to be established in him, to be built up in him, to be rooted in him. He is to be not only savior of our life, but to be Lord of our life. You see, the heresies are all about Jesus being insufficient to get us to the finish line. He might be enough to get us started in this race, but he's not enough to get us finished in the race. That is the heresy, really, in a nutshell, that Paul is refuting. His emphasis is on the sufficiency of Jesus, that Jesus is enough to get us to the finish line, that he is enough to complete us. That we must be dependent on Christ in Christ alone for truly all things that pertain to life. Let me read to you. You probably know it. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He carries the same idea when he says this. Speaking of Jesus, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Can everyone say all? All, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Peter is making the same point that Paul's making. That Jesus is enough for all things that pertain to life and godliness. If we want to grow up in the spiritual life, we must be rooted in Jesus. So, that's the point Paul's making. So then he's telling us to beware. He's warning us and correcting the Colossians from these cultural pressures that were coming upon them, lying to them, saying that Jesus is not enough. He refers to these cultural pressures as philosophy and empty deceit. That these lies were trying to cheat them from what Jesus had for them. And these lies were in the form of the cultural philosophies that were really simply traditions of men. These cultural pressures were persuading the believers to move on from Jesus, to graduate from the grace of God, to graduate from Jesus, and to move on to other philosophies to gain wisdom and insight for life. So, these cultural pressures, these philosophies of empty deceit. Let's talk about these for a second. He's going to refer to them throughout the remainder of our text tonight, but he doesn't specifically identify them. So let's go back and let's talk about these different philosophies that were going on during that time. These philosophies, which we're going to creep up here in the remainder of chapter two, it would have been obvious to them, but it's not obvious to us today. So let's identify some of them. They're going to be up on the screen. The philosophy philosophies and cultural pressures of that day included mystical polytheism. Polytheism. What does that mean? That Jesus was just another Grecan or Roman God that they were to worship. So they got this God and they got this God and Jesus is just another one. That was one cultural pressure and one philosophy that was coming upon them. The next was early forms of Gnosticism. Everyone say Gnosticism. 
That's an important word I'm sure many of you are familiar with because this was like the heresy of the early church. And what Gnosticism is, it originates actually out of Jewish and Christian thought. And the basic premise of Gnosticism is the denial of the physical world and it's an emphasis on the spiritual world. Gnostics didn't truly, some of them didn't really true Gnosticism, didn't believe in the bodily and physical form of Jesus, that he was just spirit. That's where the Gnostic heresy led to. And so this was one of the philosophies that was attacking the early church. This form of early Gnosticism, just this emphasis on only the spiritual and that Jesus is spirit. This is why Paul is emphasizing that in Jesus is the bodily or the fullness of God is in him bodily. That's why that word is so important there in what it is at the end of verse 9. He says, let's read it in verse 9 again. It says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He makes sure to put that word bodily because the heresy that was going on is that Jesus was just spirit. No, the beauty of who Jesus is, is that he came in the flesh, that he was incarnated in the fullness, that all of the Godhood and divine nature was in Christ. And so Gnosticism would say that's not true. Paul is clarifying, yes, that is true. So mystical polytheism, that was one pressure. Early Gnosticism, that was another pressure. Another pressure, I mentioned it last week, it's asceticism. What's asceticism? Well, it has Eastern roots, but it was adopted by the Grecan philosophers. It is all about spiritual discipline. It's all about really self-discipline, about the denial of bodily appetites and food. You can't indulge in anything. It's all about just this very, very discipline. You're getting yourself... And the, the emphasis is on your performance to discipline and to submit yourself into submission. This is asceticism. This was one of the cultural pressures of that time. And then the other one, which is still prevalent today, is legalism, promoted by the Jewish converts. And this group was adding to the message of Jesus by emphasizing the need to follow Jewish customs and the law, including circumcision, Jewish festivals, and the Sabbath. Everyone following? Crash course on these cultural pressures. So these cultural pressures, these were the philosophies. These were the ideas of the time that were really lies to get the early church off track. Paul is making it very clear that these pressures are man-made and that they're empty. They're able to do nothing for you. These philosophies and ideas, these cultural pressures, they were what was trying to keep the early church from believing that Jesus is enough. Everyone following? So then this is the practical application. This is the question for you. What are the cultural pressures today that are trying to keep you from following Jesus? Now, I got a few. I'll list. Are you ready for them? I would say some of the philosophies of today, the cultural pressures that are kind, trying to keep you off track from growing and maturity in Christ, they would include Marxism, critical theory, feminism, which is really, it's not trying to get political. This is a worldview that divides everyone and them versus us, oppressor versus oppressed. It's veering off track. It's a philosophy of man. Another one, obviously, atheism, that there's no God. Skepticism, 
It's its own religion. It's its own philosophy. Just doubt everything. I don't know if it's possible. Absolute truths. Who knows about that? Skepticism. Another one in a different way is consumerism. The idea, the philosophy that happiness in abundant life can be purchased. You can purchase this. You can purchase that in order to fulfill me. This is a philosophy of man that's getting us off track. Syncretism. What's syncretism? It's pick and choose whatever I want. I want a little bit of this. I want a little bit of that. I want a little bit of this. It really is. It's like syncretism, universalism. It's a whole idea of coexist. All of it's good. All roads lead to heaven. I can pick and choose whatever I want, tolerate absolutely everything. These are just a few of the philosophies and the religions of today. And regarding all of these philosophies, Paul is saying that they're empty, that they're man-made, And they are unable to complete you. In fact, they are harmful to your spiritual growth. So, what's his conclusion then? His conclusion that Jesus, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete, not in those philosophies, but in Jesus. You're complete in him. For he is the head of all principality and power. His emphasis is don't fall into those cultural pressures, but keep Jesus as the head of your life. The supreme source of knowledge, of wisdom, of life, of sustaining power. It comes from Jesus and from Jesus alone. Can I get an amen? Amen. These cultural pressures we need to beware of. And so then he, he, gets more specific in what these cultural pressures were looking at. Really, one of the main ones was this form of religious pressure. Let's read it from verses 11 to 15. He says, In Jesus you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses... In the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross and having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Hallelujah. Amen. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about, he's bringing up one of the main cultural pressures, which was in the form of a religious pressure. And that pressure was the persuasive argument against the early church that was coming from Jewish converts, which was to impose the right of circumcision upon them. It was to impose this right that if they got circumcised, then it would make them more spiritual then they would be able to grow in spirituality. So it was a little bit different. The idea in Colossians is a little bit different than the idea of Galatians. You remember the book of Galatians, Paul's refuting the same thing. But the idea there was that circumcision, circumcision, circumcision was salvific, that it was necessary for salvation. That scenes, Bible commentators would say that that's not necessarily the case here in Colossae, but that these Jewish converts were saying, if you get
get circumcised, you're more spiritual. If you're more circumcised, you're, if you're circumcised, you are a religious elite. You're better than everyone else. And that's exactly what religious pressures do. When we add things on into our life, if I do this, if I do that, it makes me more spiritual than everybody else. See, the application today is powerful. That pressure of religious pressure was a pressure of spiritual elitism. And religious elitism is all over the place today. People rely on the amount of times they serve in a particular ministry to define their ministry. The amount of times they attend church or read through the Bible. This legalistic religious attitude in that way. It can make people feel better than other people. And Paul's saying this is not the case. Our spiritual strength is not, it does not come from what we do. This is really the point that he's trying to make. That spiritual strength is not something that we attain through circumcision or attain through any performance. Spiritual strength is drawn from Christ. And so that's his point and going on in this beauty of it's not by circumcision that we we get to this place of spiritual strength. No, we've actually been brought into it by the person of Jesus that our right into spiritual life is not circumcision, that our right and entrance into spiritual life is the baptism that we have in Christ, that we've been baptized with him in death, that our sin was with him, that it was buried in the grave, that we've risen to newness of life. It is all in Christ. The point is, is is that spiritual strength isn't in something that I do. Spiritual strength comes from everything that Jesus has done for us. It is Jesus who circumcises the heart. It is Jesus who cuts away the sinful nature from our lives. It was at the cross that Jesus buried our sin with him. It was because of Jesus that our our sinful, our fallen nature was crucified with him and it was conquered by him. See, the beauty is that Jesus is sufficient for spiritual strength. See, even our debt, the written requirements that were against us, was nailed to the cross. So the point that Paul's making is that Jesus has given us spiritual life. He's brought us from death to life. Jesus has conquered the power of sin there upon the cross. Jesus has also conquered the power of the law. That's his idea of having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He's taken all those things away, nailing it to the cross. And then get this. He says that Jesus has conquered the power of Satan. In this verse, it's truly beautiful. Verse 15. Let's read it one more time. Saying, Jesus, having disarmed principalities and powers, he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Spiritual strength is not something that we attain to. Spiritual strength is something that is given to us in Christ. All strength is in him. It is by him that we overcome the power of sin. It is by his power he has overcome the power of the law. And it is Jesus who has overcome every principality and power there upon the cross. Jesus is truly enough. You see these words here in verse 15, disarmed. 
made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. These are all military terms. The word disarm carries the idea of subdued. He subdued all principalities underneath his feet, which carries the idea from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that what? The, the, the heel of the Messiah, of the seed, would be bruised, but then he would what? He would crush the head of the serpent. All principalities and powers are underneath his feet. And the cross was a spectacle to the world, to the spiritual beings as well, that at the point where they thought they were victorious, no, Jesus was victorious. He triumphed over them, just as a conqueror would come back into the city, triumphing over his enemy. Christ made a triumph over the principalities and the powers of this world. Jesus is the one where all spiritual strength comes from. David Guzik, Bible commentator, pastor, said this regarding this verse. I believe it's very interesting. Speaking of the demonic beings, he said, They are disarmed, except for their ability to deceive and to create fear. These are effective weapons that, we, that are not tangible weapons at all. Demonic spirits only have power toward us that we grant them by believing their lies. The weapons are in our hands, not theirs. How heavy is that? How does that affect our approach to spiritual warfare? It's going to be one of your questions tonight. The enemies have been disarmed. Jesus has conquered over them. They've been subdued to submission. They're nothing. They're powerless. But they're able to speak lies. And those lies then we grab hold of and we follow after. Man, the early church had their own set of lies that were coming in the form of pressures, and we do today. So what do we do with these lies? Well, we see it all throughout this chapter. All of these pressures, what did Paul do? He refused them with truth, with truth of who Jesus is, with the truth of what Jesus has done. But regardless, the point here of this section, these religious pressures, the idea of legalism, the idea of religious pressures today, it's still the same. That it, by stewing something, we're going to attain to this next level of spirituality or spiritual strength. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not the case. All spiritual strength is in Jesus. He's sufficient for all of that growth. There's nothing that we can do to be more spiritual that is not found in him. It is all found in him. If he has the strength to conquer sin, if he has the strength to conquer the power of the law, and he has the strength to conquer Satan, he's got strength to help you out. That's the point. Continuing then, these spiritual pressures from verse 16 and on. He says this, So let no one judge you then in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which is not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. 
These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Here Paul mentions these other philosophies. And he doesn't go and he doesn't call them early Gnosticism or asceticism or legalism, but that's exactly what he's referring to in these verses. And I want you to really hone in on something. None of these things are necessarily bad things. Diet, adhering to the Sabbath, self-discipline as the aesthetics would do. They're not bad things, but they weren't God things. They weren't what God was doing in their life. So even spiritual things, oh man, they can get us off track. I had a conversation with someone lately who's a peer of mine that was telling me he wants to raise his kid to be spiritual. He can pick whatever he wants. Wants to go to the synagogue, go to the synagogue. Wants to go to Catholic church, go to Catholic church. Wants to go to Christian church, go to Christian church. If he wants to go to a mosque, go to a mosque. He just wants his child to grow up to be spiritual. Listen, not much has changed. That's exactly the attitude of today, the idea of syncretism. I can take whatever I want. And that was the attitude back then. I can pick and choose what I want. So quickly, I want you to notice this. Verse 16 is reference to Jewish legalists imposing a kosher diet and the observant of Jewish holidays. Paul says to those that those things are simply a shadow of things to come, which is all in Christ. Jesus is the substance. He's the fulfillment of all things. Therefore, you don't need to do those things things to gain spirituality no you're free to observe them if you like but don't judge others and think you're more spiritual because you do them because they're simply a shadow jesus is the substance verse 18 then verse 18 referring to these angels and these worship of angels and these things not seen this was a reference to the mystical polytheism and the early forms of gnosticism that was all about this spiritual world and he refutes all those things those things aren't going to help you out. You don't need to look to those other things. No, Jesus is the head. Jesus is the source of all spiritual life. And then verse 20, the do not touch, the do not taste, do not handle. That was the asceticism. That was the idea of self-discipline. It's not about you got you to submit yourself into submission. You got to submit your indulgence, your, uh, your, your indulgences, your appetites. You got to submit those things to be more spiritual. Paul's like, all of that stuff is false humility. It's man-made stuff. Now get over all of that. None of that is going to help you in spiritual growth, which is going to be the point of the remainder of the book of Colossians. So in closing, this is what I want to point out. All of these philosophies, all of these lies that he mentions, do you notice his key to fight against them? It's Jesus, and it's the truth of who Jesus is. Friends, not much has changed. There's all sorts of cultural pressures and religious pressures and spiritual pressures. But none of those things help us in our growth in Christ. All of them are deceptive. All of them are lies. So how do we fight against them? By the truth that is found in Jesus. By knowing who Jesus is. By understanding and having a knowledge of Jesus. For in Jesus, all wisdom is found. 
really in closing, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. All those philosophies are bondage. All of them are empty deceit. No, Christ has freed you. Freed you to do what? Freed you to live in relationship with him. For in him, all life and all wisdom is found. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these truths that cut through us that can be difficult to understand in moments. But we thank you for the simple truth that who the Son sets free is free indeed. But by, by your truth, we are free. God, I pray that all the pressures that try to veer us off track, God, I pray that you would protect us from these things, that you would give us wisdom and discernment to identify them, and that, Lord, you would give us an understanding of who you are to resist and to refute them with your truth. God, I pray that we would stand on the truth of who you are, that we would stay submitted to you as our source of spiritual strength and strength through this life, that we would truly believe that verse in Second Peter, that all things pertaining to life and godliness are found in you. Jesus, would you open up our eyes and our mind and our hearts to the truths of your word that we may grow in maturity in who you are calling us to be. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.